Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers at Gen Con Online 2020. Episode 266, The Business of Small Press RPGs. Hosted by Jason Walters of Indie Press Revolution. Presented by Brian Dalrymple, Jennifer Ward, and Kat Tobin. With small press role um, I don't know if I should read it. Just a 12-year plan. We wrote a, a good business plan when we came out. We definitely had a roadmap where we wanted to go, which has been, you know, kind of most of it's thrown out the window in COVID, trying to figure out how to adapt to this. Um, but since we opened, uh, role-playing games have been a really important part of the store. They've been a really important part of my life, so I wanted to make sure that we translated that over. Now, I've been playing D&D since like 1980-ish to age myself. Um, and then as, as role-playing games got to be more intricate or I wanted to try new worlds, we wanted to bring those in. And that's where those indie press books come in because it seems like especially smaller publishers are more willing to explore themes and situations that big name publishers can veer away from because they want to make sure, you know, they, they're going to fit on a shelf somewhere. So that's why we carry a really deep selection of indie games because they appeal to, I can find a game to appeal to just about everybody, right? From, yeah, let's go yeah. high fantasy with elves and things to let's all be princess warriors defending our lands. And, and I love that breadth. All right, thank you. Uh, Brian, I think you have a lot of thoughts on this matter. Um, perhaps share them with us. Uh, on carrying any uh, RPGs? Well, sure. Yeah, uh, just, just indie RPGs and your time with them. Well, um, so our store is celebrating 32 years in business this year. Uh, if we can make it through the end of the year, we're huh. our fingers crossed. Uh, and when we got started, uh, you know, D&D was still like the big king thing. I guess that it's back to being again today. Uh, and uh, it was a foundational game for us. Uh, and uh, as we moved through uh, the releases that came out over the ensuing decades with the rise of story and setting focused RPGs into indies breaking out in the aughts, um, we just expanded on our selection of RPGs that we have. I mean, uh, we our sales have always been probably close to around 50% RPGs. Uh, it's always been that way for us. We've never seen that as anything unusual. Um, but locally, we're known as the shop that carries RPGs uh, because a lot of the other shops, the newer shops, uh, haven't had that kind of history with them uh, and maybe are just getting into them for the first time. Uh, so for us, uh, carrying indie RPGs uh, was, I guess, something that we kind of always done. We just weren't calling them indie RPGs. They were, these were uh, products that people had uh, made on their own or uh, printed off at, at Kinko's or uh, in their houses. Uh, and when the internet allowed for dissemination of these kinds of games uh, more broadly, uh, it was an easy 
uh, answer for us to just jump in and start carrying a lot of this stuff. Uh, and it's gotten kind of overwhelming really over the last couple of decades, the, the velocity with which a lot of these games are coming out, both in the indie space uh, and in the more traditional space uh, through uh, places like the DMs Guild uh, and Drive Through, um, where we're seeing lots of both indie RPGs uh, and small press, uh, traditional, more mainstream focused RPGs coming out. Uh, and it, it makes it challenging from a, a retail perspective uh, to figure out which games that have uh, hard, hard copy availability to bring in. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, I also, uh, I'm a, a, a co-owner of a small publishing company. So we're seeing the challenges that come in from that direction as well. And I also worked for a while in uh, wholesale. So I've kind of seen it from every, every angle. Um, you, and you worked for I, Alliance, didn't you, or one of its predecessors? I worked for uh, what was called Georgia Music at the time. It's uh, now been subsumed into uh, GTS distribution. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. Uh, and I also chaired the wholesale division of Gamma, the Game and Manufacturers Association, for three years. All right. Thank you, Brian. Um, I guess I should go ahead and, and tell the audience a little bit about you know who I am. Uh, I am uh, Jason Walters, the general manager of, of Indie Press Revolution. Uh, and I became involved in the business of role-playing games in 2001 when I was one of the partners that bought uh, Hero Games away from Cyber Games. Uh, boy, 20 years ago now. Um, so what I am mostly is a distributor, and we'll, we'll come back around to that later. Um, so I think it might be good for everyone watching this if we were to, to have a brief moment where we talked about what's, what's traditionally called the, the three-tiered system and its sort of variants. Uh, Brian, would you be willing to lead with sort of an overview of that since you did work at, at well, what became GTS eventually? Sure, sure. So when, when we say three tiers, really there's four tiers. The fourth tier is always the consumer, the end consumer. Uh, so when we talk about a three-tier distribution system, it's a chain of supply uh, that starts with the, uh, the publisher and the designers of games uh, who shoulder the uh, responsibility of production. Uh, like Kat was saying, contracting with all of the different artists and layout people and printers. Uh, all of that happens there. Uh, and once they have, uh, once the publisher has a game ready to go and they want to find a way to get it into the hands of consumers, one of the ways that you can do that is through the, uh, the what we call the distribution channel, the three-tier distribution system. They would move from publisher to distributor to retailer, and then eventually down to consumer. So the three tiers would be publisher, distributor, and retailer. The publisher sells to the distributor. The distributor, in theory, has a warehouse uh, or a depot, depending on how you're uh, uh, how they're uh, conducting their business. Um, where they make games available to stores. Uh, stores like mine and Jennifer's have regular contact weekly with multiple distributors. Uh, and we, we have pre-orders in place with them for upcoming products that we know about. And we have reps that we talk with to find out about things that maybe we didn't know about up until that point. Uh, we make our purchases from them because it's convenient for us as a store to purchase items from hundreds of different publishers at once put them all into one shipping container, pay shipping for it once and have it uh, show up at our store uh, on uh, one or more uh, days that we've set up as being kind of a new releases day for us in the shop. Uh, and then 
we use our social media and advertising that we have locally to let all of our customers know about things that are coming out. They come into the shop uh, in non-plague times. Sometimes they play games in the shop, uh, but nowadays more often uh, they'll be ordering either from our web store uh, or coming in uh, and picking stuff up uh, to take home. So that's the three tiers. Uh, and each tier has a different set of responsibilities. Like I said, the publisher uh, bears the burden of all of the costs of production, things that are associated with writing and editing and layout and art, uh, and then all of the production costs with the printing. They pay all the shipping generally when they're sending stuff out to the distributor. The distributor uh, operates on the tightest margin of any of the three tiers. Usually they're making less than uh, 10% uh, of uh, of the final end uh, suggested retail price, which is set by the publisher usually. Uh, and then the store is purchasing from the distributor at a margin that usually ranges between 40 and 50% off of the SRP. And then they're selling it uh, at a price that they said, usually most stores follow the suggested retail price, but obviously there are, uh, there's competition in different venues, whether you're selling online or whether you've, if you've got a community that is set up with uh, some uh, discounters that's ultimately up to the store to decide what the price is going to be. And then it goes out to the consumer from there. And that's the three tiers. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brian. Uh, Jennifer, uh, could you, could you touch on as a retailer, just sort of some of your uh, experiences with the three tiered systems and, and, you know, since we're all amongst friends here, frustrations, um, and um, insights into the three-tiered system. So like Brian said, I work with a number of distributors and I now also work directly with a number of publishers just to make sure I can get the product that will sell from my store, right? Um, a lot of your relationship with your distributor is a relationship with your rep at that distributor. So developing those good relationships are good. Those reps are kind of like store owners in that they represent thousands of products. So if they don't have specialized knowledge in something like a, a smaller press, then that information can get lost. Um, for the most part, my relationships with distributors are great. I think over the 10 years of being open, I've asked to change a rep once because a lot of that's dependent on how you're gonna work with them. Do your personalities match? Are they in the same time zone that you're in? Like, that's a big thing. A three hour difference is a huge difference. Um, and the same thing is with publishers. Typically, if you're going direct with publishers, your order sizes can be larger. Like you're probably gonna order in case quantities instead of one or two of things. Um, so when we go directly with publishers, it's because of that. With a distributor like IPR, we use them because it's a very specialized knowledge. It's specifically small press games that I know I'm going to go for. And I know if I call somebody there, they're going to be able to talk to me about each of those games. Now, uh, plague times change all of that. The biggest issue with distributors right now is it isn't with distributors, it's with shipping. And so just trying to get content when you're in. Um, and then we also, like Brian and a lot of stores, back dozens of Kickstarters, right? Throughout the year, we'll have at least a dozen games at any time. Um, and a lot of times we're doing that with smaller RPGs right now, which is changing how that works, right? Publishers are figuring out how to use Kickstarter. Stores are figuring out how to use it. We're trying to figure out together 
are retail tiers appropriate? Does that hurt the relation, their direct relationship with consumers or does it hurt the relationship with stores or does it help all of that? So it's, it's really an interesting time to be in the industry because everything is changing. Some of it for good reasons and some of it just for rapid reasons. Um, like Brian said, there's no in-store play right now. Role-playing games are all about, for me, they're better enjoyed in person. So how do you play those games online? How do we support those games online? How do we let people know, hey, the new Fiasco box set is gonna be out soon. Here's how you come get it from us and here's what it's all about. I will say the one big thing we do in the store that's a little different from others is we tend to refer to them as storytelling games instead of role-playing games because that some people hear role-playing and they tune off because they're that not that kind of nerd. So we call them storytelling games which brings in more families and kids and people like that. Yeah, we we here at IPR, we tend to to also uh, kind of um, distinguish storytelling from role-playing games as kind of a distinct subgenre. So, you know, all storytelling game, not all story, not all role-playing games are storytelling games, but all storytelling games are in theory role-playing games. But there is a exactly. definite distinction. Um, so uh, I, I have so, I have some thoughts on what you were just talking about, Jennifer. But but before I before I share them, uh, hey Kat, um, would you be willing to uh, share with us some insights? I think a lot of people watching this are probably people who'd be interested in publishing most of all. Um, you know a lot about publishing. You and I work together pretty much every day. Um, tell us a little bit about. Kind of, kind of both the joys and sorrows of being a publisher of, of small press role play games of, of not Pathfinder and Dungeons and Dragons and these sorts of things. Um, yeah, so I think the the biggest um, issue for us, particularly with the the kind of three tier system, is like Jennifer was saying, is is just getting the information and the knowledge about our games out there and getting them to retailers. Like retailers are so massively swamped at the moment. They have so many different um, you know, avenues of information coming at them. And it's, it's very difficult for them to kind of curate a collection um, that includes a lot of independent publishers, especially when you consider how many, like I said, how many avenues independent publishers are coming into them from these days. Um, so I know that uh, there is, as well as that, I think when you're not publishing something like Pathfinder, D&D 5e, um, the game stores are a lot less likely to take a chance as well. Um, so I know, I know myself, like anytime I go to a new city, I always kind of see if there is a game store there and I go in and I check out what RPGs they have. And everywhere I go, I see the same kind of big three games, like, and everyone is stocking those RPGs, but you know, it's, it's fewer stores like, like Brian and Jennifer's that, that will actually look at stocking the more independent and the smaller publishers. So that's a that's a frustration as a small publisher. It's very, very difficult to send out your signal among the noise that retailers are getting and make retailers aware of what you have. Um, and I think as well as that, then distributors are less likely to carry large volumes. Um, particularly, we find this all the time with our older titles. Um, it can be sometimes very difficult to 
for retailers to order our older titles from their distributors because distributors are focusing on what's selling and what's selling the most and that usually tends to be whatever is the newest hotness so for a company like ours that has kind of a 20 year old um, tale of, of products um, it, it can be very difficult to remind people about the older ones and to get those in front of distributors in a way that they will then pass those pass those on to um, the retailers so there there have been times in the past where we've that we work very closely with um, impressions now at flat river group and there have been times when we've had to direct retailers to um, impressions to try and get access to our stock or to buy stock directly from us because the distributors are just not willing to take a chance on older smaller press games and and I feel like that's a, a big shame for the industry because it means that a lot of the classics you know a lot of really really great RPGs are just not available um, to the general public in game stores and I, I think the industry throughout is poorer for that you've had um and then and then after i ask you this question we have some questions from watchers that we'll uh, we'll all talk about uh you've had some pretty good luck though selling your older titles directly through your own web store though have you not yeah um i mean we've so our main our business model is based on retail distribution so we um the volumes that we can sell through retail allow us to print print runs of books um, because we we pride ourselves on producing high quality books and to do those kind of hardbacks you need to be printing offset printing so you need to be printing in thousands um, and and working with with retailers and with distributors allows us to get those volumes of sales um, but yeah we have we're we're really focused on trying to develop our web store at the moment and especially in in these end times where we don't really know what's going on you know a lot of people are, are coming to our web store directly um, and we've also obviously we we have our, our stock on on IPR as well so that's another way of of accessing it and you know and it's just allowing customers you know the the fourth tier as as brian was saying it's allowing them direct access to to more products but um it's always you know we're we work really hard to try and make sure that we're um giving our retail partners um every kind of offer that they can that customers can get on our website and making sure that we get, always give the pdfs through the bits and mortar program to retail customers. So we make sure that retail customers are never disadvantaged by buying from their friendly local game store rather than us. All right, thank you, Kat. Okay, I've got some questions, guys. Uh, from Zeal Zaddy, um, how do most stores move forward in the era of RPG pre-selling through Kickstarter instead of store distribution? Um, Brian and Jennifer, you both touched on this. Uh, Jennifer, could you share your thoughts with us on Zeal Zaddy's question? Uh, yeah, so a lot of us are just starting to research and back through Kickstarter. Uh, there's a general kind of set of guidelines that I think many retailers look for. We still need to make margin because while we may be selling games at 40 or 50% over wholesale, that's because we still have to cover all of our bills, right? We're not making 50% profit. 
Um, so I'll often look for uh, games that I think my customers are going to find intriguing or that I think I can build intrigue around. Um, I look to put down some money, but maybe not all of my money up front. I like to know I'm going to get the same product that regular backers are going to get. So I'm getting the same promos. I'm getting it delivered at the same time. Like there's some basic things I look for. And then for our customers, we have a, a separate Facebook page just for what we back on Kickstarter to let people know this is what we're backing. This is what we're thinking about. If they come put a down payment in the store, I will sell them the Kickstarter version at the same price they could have received it on Kickstarter. I take whatever I was charged for shipping, spread that across all of the things that I got. So my customer who pre-orders is getting it for the same price they'd get online. If they don't pre-order, then I will either put it at a reasonable margin um, or I will find out what the market price is out there. So we want to make sure our customers have access to it. They have to put less money up front than they'd have to do on Kickstarter. So they get some bonuses to that. Often the shipping is cheaper because I'm paying for a bunch of stuff at once. Um, and my big benefit right now in my area is I'm the only store that's doing that. So we're the store of the new and the store of the harder to find things. Um, but Brian, what, what do you do for Kickstarter? Well, I mean, the way we look at Kickstarter, uh, I guess it's, it's changed with the, uh, with the rise of uh, post-campaign pledge platforms, backer kit and uh, various outfits like that. Um, like, like Kat said, if you want to put out a, a high quality product, uh, you're going to want to do a, a real offset print run on it. Uh, and to do that, you're going to need to produce a lot of stuff. Uh, when Kickstarter first got running, generally uh, stuff would be available on Kickstarter in a 30 day window. And most people that ran Kickstarters at the time would have told you that uh, they're not going to move through an entire production run of product in 30 days worth of pledging. Uh, so if they want to run uh, a print run that's several thousand units long, uh, the money that they raise on Kickstarter rightly would help them with all of those production costs. Uh, but ultimately, if they're going to make money on the products that they're selling, they need to be able to sell a lot more than what they've had pledged out on Kickstarter. Uh, in the case of a lot of small press RPGs, that might just be uh, a few hundred people or maybe a small number of thousands of people. Uh, and if your print run is going to be in, in the thousands, uh, plural, then you're going to have a lot more product than you're going to be able to move out through Kickstarter in general. Uh, I completely agree with, uh, with uh, Jen. We, uh, when we were setting up our best practices for retailers for Kickstarter, uh, we had said that uh, we thought that a, a low entry uh, bid uh, or pledge level for stores is best so that we're not uh, putting out money for uh, that we're going to be waiting a year until we see product uh, for. Uh, I think for consumers, uh, a lot of consumers can, can, can bear that. They can be like, well, this is something I'm going to want in a year, so I'll just pay for it now. Uh, but stores have got to be operating on regular capital. So uh, if we put out $300 on this Kickstarter this week and $200 on this Kickstarter the next week, and we're not going to see product for a year, that's a lot of money kind of sitting out there. Uh, so uh, like a placeholder commitment 
that you're going to purchase it when it comes around at a smaller uh, uh, amount, uh, I think is helpful. I definitely agree that uh, stores are going to want access to all the cool little extra little bits uh, that the backers are going to be getting. Uh, we also like to ask the publishers if they can do it is to offer something that is especially just for the shops, some kind of event, which again, we can't really do right now, but some kind of extra spiff uh, that the uh, consumer uh, might not be able to get unless they pick it up in the shop. Because I mean, there's a benefit to not having to pay shipping for sure. Uh, but if that also comes with uh, some kind of neat thing that you can only get by coming into the store once the, when the product comes out, that's an extra bonus. Uh, one of the nice things about uh, doing crowdfunding is uh, because the consumer is paying for product up front, or the product is paid for up front, when they do come around to collect, quite often uh, the money has already been uh, exchanged uh, and the customer still has money in their pocket and it gives the, it gives the retailer the uh, opportunity to maybe uh, add on some additional sales for related items uh, or uh, accessories that might uh, go along with what it is that they're, that they're picking up. So uh, I think there's a real benefit uh, for stores for backing Kickstarters. We've, we've been a Kickstarter super backer in the shop now for a couple of years. Uh, we're well over 200 uh, campaigns back uh, and we think it's worthwhile. Not every store agrees with us, um, but uh, with the, I guess to answer Zilzadi's question, um, I don't believe that uh, the Kickstarter direct-to-consumer model is going to supplant distribution, uh, that it's a new uh, way that's going to come through because I think that, uh, like I said, as Kat mentioned, uh, if you're going to be producing high quality product, you need to be able to sell it through more places than just your Kickstarter or backer kit or online portal that you've got uh, coming through there. Also, when Kickstarter first got started, we didn't have things like backer kit. I think a lot of consumers are starting to become very wise to the uh, idea that they can, if they see a, a, a crowdfunding campaign that they're interested in, that they can go through and they can back it at a low amount. Uh, let's say that let's say the product is a hundred bucks, uh, but the consumer knows that if they come in and they drop five dollars uh, on it, that it's very likely that they'll have the chance after the crowdfunding period ends that they can come in on the tail end uh, through pledge manager or backer kit and have access to a lot of the same product uh, and be able to uh, have more time to pay for it. Uh, so. It's, it's a rapidly changing model right now, but I think it fits in with everything else. When we talk about the three-tier distribution or four tiers, um, what we're seeing in variations is ways in which one of those tiers kind of gets bypassed or overlooked. Sometimes it's distribution, sometimes it's retail, but there's always gonna be the publisher and the consumer because the, ultimately the reason why the chain exists is for those two to get together. Uh, but there are helpful ways that uh, every aspect of the industry uh, can come in and uh, participate and profit from these systems, uh, depending on the, on the product uh, and the, 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 the type of product that it is, uh, the audience that it's going for and that sort of thing. Something that I think a lot of people uh, aren't aware of is how big the RPG market is as the size of the overall gaming market. I think when people walk into a show like Gen Con and they look around and they see all these role-playing games going on and uh, 
they might get the idea that, you know, like, just like when I say in my shop, role-playing games are 40 or 50% of our sales, they might think, oh, well, that's normal. Role-playing games are 40 or 50% of the industry sales. And the reality is, is it's actually way, way, way smaller than that. It could be as small as 5%. Uh, it's certainly probably no bigger than 9 or 10%. Uh, and most of that is Dungeons and Dragons. So when you get into these uh, indie RPGs, you're really talking about a market that's incredibly tiny, uh, yet still has a lot of the same challenges uh, production-wise uh, that a board game that'll run uh, 50,000 units uh, has uh, because there's just so much that goes into them. Uh, and because it's a foundational part of our hobby, so many of the people that work in all aspects of the industry have a love for role-playing games. So in a lot of ways, our influence is, is outsized uh, to the dollars that, that uh, run through the channel uh, uh, in our category. All right, thank you, Brian. Uh, Kat, I think I have a question here for you. Uh, it's from Dr. Oh boy, Majasajajati. Uh, what about the PDF distribution model, such as we see with drive-through RPG, and what about bundle of holding as a mechanism to get interest in a small publisher? Yeah, um, I think that like it's it's really interesting because even in the time that I've been working professionally in the industry, which is um, less than ten years, I've seen massive changes in terms of how. Um, how RPGs are distributed to customers. And I think the, the biggest ones, obviously, things like drive-through RPG has, has literally gone from zero to, I would guess, one of the biggest players in the market, possibly the biggest player for PDF distribution. Um, and IPR, obviously, as well, you know, really big for, for PDF distribution. And um, we're seeing a really interesting kind of grassroots groundswell of um, PDFs from uh, itch.io. So that's an, a new kind of forum that a lot of really, really interesting RPG design is being done in. Um, and I think that the great thing about having those avenues um, for distributing retail PDFs, I, I feel like they're great for, um, they're absolutely great for, as, as the questioner asked, for um, building awareness um, of smaller presses but they tend for us to be very much a, um, a later market. Certainly things like the bundle of holding, um, we would always leave it a year or two before we would put any products on the bundle of holding. Um, because it is, I think that when you, and I think drive-through RPG is similar as well, in that they run a lot of sales. Um, so they do a lot of, of discounting of PDFs, um, which is which is great. I mean, that's that's, how they that's how they operate that's that's how they make their money but it does mean that it it devalues the worth of the pdf and it creates um i would say very unrealistic expectations about how much digital products should cost um when the reality is that um as i, I think um, brian was saying like just as much work goes into um, creating one of these digital PDF RPGs as as goes into the printing of a book. It's just that one of them is a physical product and the other one is a digital one. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think they're really great from a marketing perspective, but we would very much look at them as a as a marketing avenue rather than a distribution avenue, if that makes sense, because um, they are 
you know, we, we work with these bigger platforms to, to build our brand awareness, but it, but it is, there is a, a balance that you have to strike, I think, between devaluing the product that you have and, you know, making it accessible to people at different price points. All right. Thank you, Kat. Um, Jennifer, another another question from our Dredux, Dredu. To what degree has online direct-to-consumer self-distributed model disrupted the traditional three-tier system? Um, I would say for us, for, for Crazy Squirrel, we've lost some percentage of sales, of course, because it's easier to go direct to them. And I think that was especially true in the early days of Kickstarter when as a retailer, I was running scared. Right. But as soon as I had a chance to slow down and really investigate what's going on for the majority of companies that I work with, I, I've adapted to it and I figured it out. I'm always going to lose some sales. I don't expect to get 100 percent of everybody's hobby dollar in town. That's unrealistic. I mean, even in just the fact that there's a number of other game stores in town. So the, the trick is really having finding the time you need to look into the games you want and the publishers that you want to work with um, and figuring that out. And then for indie games, indie games are like all other games. Some are going to sell themselves because people have heard of Fate or they've heard of Apocalypse World games. But for the other ones, we just have to try to sell them a little bit harder which works out because they're games that we're passionate in and you're always gonna sell more games you're passionate in. Um, I know one thing I'm gonna ask Kat after this is how can I get to the point where I can distribute PDFs because so many of us now have created web stores in the past three months. And I know my web store allows me to sell PDFs but I hadn't thought about that until she just mentioned it. So that's another new avenue. That's another way for me to try to capture more customers. Uh, if I might take a moment and also uh, address the same question that uh, Jennifer just did. Uh, this right here are all of the books that have either come into stock at IPR or been submitted for review to IPR in the last week, all of which were products of crowdfunding. So I would say rather than disrupting the three-tiered three -tiered system, for those of us who, who've kind of been on top of things, they've massively fed into the three-tiered system. A lot of, a lot of from, the, from the small press role-playing game perspective, a lot of things that would never have gotten made without some form of crowdfunding have been made and made available to retailers and distribution and to customers that way. So I, I think on the whole, after a period of adjustment, as you guys all mentioned, it's been a boon, not a detriment. Um, Okay, uh, let's see here. I feel like I'm gonna date myself. I feel like David Letterman, so dating myself. Um, let's see, uh, from uh, A Gay Murgirl, um, what to you makes a game stand out in a sea of new ones being out all the time these days? So what to you makes a game stand out in a sea of new ones being out all the time these days? Uh, Kat, could you, uh, could you lead off with that one? Yeah, um, I think that, like, certainly when I'm, um, I 
I, I was saying to people, one of the things that I'm going to miss the most about Gen Con is, is hitting up the IPRA booth and like just going through and, and buying physical copies of everything. And certainly what I'm looking for when, when I'm picking up games for myself is um, I'm looking for interesting settings. You know, I think that there were a lot of um, a lot of games out there that are trying to do the same thing as, you know, there's a, a common trope, which is um, recreating. It's like my game is D&D, but better. You know, there's a lot of games that are that are rehashing the same kind of genres or the same ideas and the same tropes. And so I think for me, what I'm looking at, I'm looking for is a really interesting setting, like a setting that I haven't seen for RPGs before. Um, or interesting mechanics that clearly tie into the setting in a, in a really strong way and and reflect on that setting and and heighten the the sense that you get of the themes and the tone when you play that game. Like something like Abadiah um, Ravikal's Dread is a great example of that. You know, using a Jenga terror for for suspense. Um, so I'm looking for for a kind of a marriage of mechanics and theme and tone. I think when I'm looking for new games for myself, um, but we we don't sell other people's products um, on our website. It's only it's only our own games. Um, yeah, so I can't really speak to the the retail aspect of that. Fortunately, we have people here who can. Um, Jennifer, do you want to take that? What do we look for <clears throat> when things come in? Um, there's a lot of product out there. So it, it is this great time where we get to be picky and choosy about what we want to bring in. So I, I look, we're a family friendly, inclusive store. So it's easy to get nixed from our shelves if you're writing anything that's overly misogynistic or xenophobic or anything like that. Now, that being said, games can contain that within them because that helps us learn from those things, right? The whole reason why I started playing role-playing games way back when is because I could explore different parts of my personality. So when we're looking for a new game, we are looking for an interesting mechanic. Apeleon became a local favorite because it encouraged you to play together. And at the time, we were seeing some gamers who wanted to win at role-playing games. It was hard to explain to them that these aren't games you win. Right? These are games you participate in and have fun. So we're looking for things that are going to encourage people playing together, especially right now. When we have families who are coming in and saying, look, we're not going out. We can't go to our friends' houses. We need something that we can do together. Okay, what games do I have that you can play with your four-year-old, your 12-year-old, and your 17-year-old? How can I bring that together? So we're looking for those things that are going to help people have fun learn something about themselves and maybe learn something about the world. Um, and then the cold-hearted retailer in me is looking for games that will make me money and I can merchandise so they don't look like a mess on the shelves. And we've seen that getting better. Sometimes the smaller press games at the beginning were like, here's some cards in a chintzy box and it's not wrapped or anything. So we're kind of, how do I merchandise it? Because I can't sell it if it looks terrible. Thank you. Thank you. Though, though, sometimes thinking back to the old days of small press role playing games, some of the maybe the lowest production value ones were, were some of the most fun. Thinking oh, back yeah, to absolutely. It. But hard to sell. You're right. I mean, I right. was trying as to. As a gamer, too. I love those games. As a retailer, I'm like, why can't you just buy a shrink wrap machine? <laughs> um, 
Okay, I've got another question uh, from Random Creation. Uh, do you have a marketing success story you would like to share or, or alternately a horror story? Uh, Brian, would you take, take, take that one away? Oh, um, well, my experience in publishing is still really limited. Uh, I don't know if this is a great question for me. Um, I mean, as far as uh, like a, a horror story store marketing, store marketing has its own challenges uh, that are really not related, I would say, too much to, uh, to game marketing. Um, if Kat doesn't mind, I'd like to throw this one back over to Kat because I think she would be much better suited to answer this question. However, I've also got some good uh, uh, comments uh, on the previous question if you want to come back about how you find stuff. Uh, but I think this is a real good question for Kat. So I'm going to pass. Yeah, I should, I should really have, that's very gentlemanly, I, I should really have passed that question over to you because I felt like the previous question was more kind of retail facing. Um, oh gosh, marketing, marketing disasters. Um, we've... Um, yeah, I, I think our one of our most recent productions is um, the Yellow King RPG, and that's been kind of a, a series of a series of disasters at every stage of the production, um, which has been quite embarrassing. So when you're constantly going to um, to backers and to customers and saying, "Oh, sorry, there's been another problem," it's you know that is. It, that is some of the worst marketing you can do. There's no, there's no marketing like your own failures as a company, I think, or there's no bad marketing like your own failures as a company. Um, you know, so you just, all you can do is, is kind of, you know, apologize and, and try and make up for it and learn from it and try and do better the next time. But it always seems like there's something new to go wrong. So um, yeah, so that's definitely one of our kind of marketing horror stories. And, and like Jason knows, we, we just, we had so many different, you know, like one of our um, distribution or one of our, our print contacts actually had a nervous breakdown. And, and, it's, and it's weird because the, the book is um, about the Yellow King. So it's all about kind of, you know, brain altering reality, melding um, kind of, uh, role-playing and we were like oh did he did he read the book maybe is that what happened should we not do anything with this should we maybe not publish it but we did anyway and nobody else seems to have had a nervous breakdown so that's good on the theme of the yellow king being a cursed book i'll, I'll put out there that on its way here to our warehouse the the truck driver uh, couldn't find us, then his tires blew out, uh, and then the printer hadn't really boxed them in a traditional manner. Um, so yeah, guess some, some projects are like that. Um, Brian, would you like to, um, then we're going to move on to some more questions. Would you like to address the previous question you mentioned? Oh, sure. I just had a few notes. Um, so to give you some kind of idea from the retailer perspective, uh, even, uh, additionally to, to what uh, uh, Jen had mentioned. Um, so the book Jen's store and my store, you know, like I said, we, we carry a lot of stuff besides small press role-playing games and uh, more mainstream role-playing games. Uh, board games are, are a big driver of our sales. 7,000 board games came out last year and the year before. Uh, 5,000 the year before that. 
Um, there's a flood, as we talked about, uh, of small press stuff coming through. RPGs with the resurgence of uh, D&D 5th edition, uh, the number of different titles coming in through there has also been huge. Uh, you could spend all of your time as a store uh, in the Games on Demand room at Gen Con or the first exposure room playing nothing but uh, game ideas or new things, uh, and you would barely scratch the surface of all of the stuff that's out there. Uh, so, uh, by and large, what I've got to do uh, is rely on other people like Jason and like IPR does a fantastic job of this, uh, or uh, in the case with other games with my distributors, some of my other distributors for different game categories. Uh, and uh, so I will look at review sites. I will look at the hot list on IPR. I will ask Jason straight up, hey, what, what do you think about this? You know, what's, what's been the best selling stuff? In times where uh, conventions take place in person, uh, uh, like was mentioned previously, running over to the IPR booth or the IGDN booth, sitting down and talking with Tina or Jason or Pete and saying, hey, you know, what, what is moving? What is drawing the attention here? Uh, and another great resource that we have is stores, which has kind of like been turned on its head from back in the old days, uh, where we were seen as the expert in information sourced by our customers. In a lot of cases, that's turned around. And our customers uh, are the experts in information sources for us as stores. Uh, because us as store owners, uh, although we are required to have a certain level of expertise across all of the different things that we have in our shops, rarely will we have the uh, degree of individual expertise that a hardcore gamer who loves a thing will have on that thing. Uh, so I've got a group of customers of mine who are uh, indie game connoisseurs uh, that will call me up and ask me, hey, have you heard about this thing? Can you get it? Uh, you know, and I'll be like, I've never heard of this before, uh, but I will find out. Uh, so, you know, uh, if uh, one of the first places I'll check uh, is with IPR, uh, but I'll also fish around. Um, I'll just uh, give an example. I had a customer asking me this past week, can you get the Green Knight RPG. And uh, I'm like, what's the Green Knight RPG? Is this, is this, a, is this, like, is this a Pendragon thing? Is it from Chaosium? No, no, no. It's from this company, A24. Uh, so I went looking and I find that A24 is like an entertainment company that does like movies and scripts and sells like coffee mugs and t-shirts. And they have a role-playing game on their website that they've in some way been involved with and put out. Uh, I've got no outlet for this sort of thing. I've been asking around. So I contacted them directly over Twitter because you can't contact them through their website. You've got to jump through hoops in a lot of cases to try to track down this stuff. When it comes to like catching my eye when I'm looking around, if I don't have an expert that I can rely on for something like that, theme is important. Uh, certain designers, if you know who the designers are, if they've got a track record, I, I know when I look at something uh, and I'm saying, oh, I know who that is. This is going to be really good because they did this, this, and that. Uh, and like uh, Kat mentioned, uh, production quality is also a big deal. Although like Jason mentioned, not oftentimes, especially if you're looking at somebody's very first design and they don't have a track record to go off of and the production isn't there, but the game might be fantastic. It might be just the most amazing thing that you've ever seen. Uh, and in that way, not being able to play absolutely everything because we just can't. Um, 
we rely on other people's expertise and help. Uh, and that's how you sift your way through the sea. Oh, thanks, Brian. Um, we have been given our 10 minute time warning by Rosie, but we, we, there's, there's no real time frame here. We can keep going a little while longer if that's okay with all of you. We've got some more questions. Is that, is that good with everyone? Okay. Um, next question up again from Zeal Zaddy. What are the most interesting trends in manufacture distribution and retail that you see coming? Uh, Jennifer. Uh, I mean, for me, when it comes to indie games, it really is that people are taking some chances. Sorry, I'm at work, so that's my work phone. Um, people are taking some real chances and what they're willing to, to write about and to publish. Um, and they're doing it for all ages. Like, no thank you monsters changed how I sell role-playing games to families with young kids. Right, there had been a few options before, but that was one that came out. Um, so I'm always interested in that. I, I now have this PDF idea stuck in my head, so I'm gonna be working on that next week to see if I can find some publishers that would allow me to also sell their PDFs. Um, I like for programs like Bits and Mortar to, for more companies to participate in that. Um, and for more people to be aware of it. Cause that's, I, as a gamer, I love a hard book, but if I have to game somewhere else, I like to just take a tablet. Um, and then I think we're gonna see, I have friends and my husband are trying to play some indie games online right now. <clears throat> They're trying to play a microscope game online, which has a unique set of challenges, right? Cause microscope's all about note cards on the table. So I think we're gonna see how those games are gonna adapt from situations like this, right? It's, they're gonna have to, we're gonna have to figure out how to play some of these games. I, I use a really popular online service to play some role-playing games and I hate it because um, the tech's not there. So I'm hoping we see games continue, embrace some of the tech challenges that we're presented with right now when we can't be around a single table, um, but still keep that kind of I don't know, underdog bullheadishness about we're gonna make the games we wanna make and get them to the most people we can. Uh, so, so I'm hoping we see that. I'm hoping uh, one trend I would love to see is more copy editors. would love to see that happen in the small publishing world. I'm previously a copy editor from newspapers. It pains me to read some of the things coming out. Please add that in. All right, uh, whew, more questions. Um, this one from Jason, I'm sorry, Jason, I always mispronounce your last name, Jason Pitt. Uh, is there such a thing as an evergreen RPG product other than D&D and Pathfinder in retail stores? Uh, you just wanna keep rolling with that for a minute, Jennifer, then we'll move over to Brian. Um, I'm sorry, I was looking at something else. What was the question? Um, so, oh, evergreens. I kind yes. of addressed this on YouTube a little bit. Um, some of the small press that's become evergreens for us, uh, Fate and any of the books with that, anything written in an apocalypse engine has worked out well. Savage Worlds was there for a while, but one issue with a game that, like, we could never stock the titles. It was so hard to restock. 
And if I can't get your game on a regular basis, it's hard for me to keep people interested in it. Um, we've got, uh, no, Thank You Monsters has become evergreen for us. I'm a huge Jason Morningstar fan. Night Witches will always be on our shelves. Um, one, because we sell a lot of it because it's one of my favorite games. So a lot of times your store's best-selling games are because you and or your staff love that game. So it's easier for you to sell. Um, and then kind of like what Brian was saying earlier, I listen to my indie RPG group all the time. What are they talking about? What do they want to play? Um, we used in the before times they'd play in the store. In the before times, I was supposed to start a weekly small indie game up. Um, but Evergreens for us, right now, I'll I'll buy any fake game without thinking about it. I'll buy any APOC world game without thinking about it. Um, I love some of the new boxed sets that are role-playing games that have the appearance of a board game. So the people who aren't nerdy enough for role-playing games feel comfortable buying it. It's weird, but that seems to work. Um, and I love games that are easy to get into. Fate Accelerated is a great thing because it's a five, people will spend $5 to take a chance, right? They may not spend $20 to take a chance. So I'm hoping we see some things in that direction. Now, on that note, just a pure personal question. Uh, did you see the Flash Gordon Savage Worlds box set from about mm, a little less than a year ago? I think I did. I guess we retailers, we get so much information. Uh, it was it was so beautiful. And I remember looking at it and reading it, thinking it was so terrific. And that that maybe no one, I would be the only person who thought that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, <laughs> so, I, I absolutely understand that. Um, and if we were ever at a bar, ask me my embarrassing Jason Morningstar story. Oh, okay. All right. Not not here right now. No, okay. It's not that embarrassing. It's just stupid. Okay. Uh, Brian, do you want to take a crack at um, that same question about sure. evergreen they, small press RPGs? Sure. Uh, and I guess for the benefit of those who don't understand the term evergreen, an evergreen product is a product that you will always order, always reorder. It, will something, it is something that will always be on the shelf. Uh, even if it's been out for years and years or decades and decades. Uh, and the items in game stores that sell most often are, uh, as uh, Pat alluded to earlier, which presents problems with distribution, which is front list, that is new items, uh, because the greatest uh, opportunity that a game has to sell is when it is new. Anyone who remembers record stores or bookstores <laughs> would find that the big displays when you first walked into either one of those are all of the things that are brand new. Uh, that's absolutely true for games. But the uh, other big category of games inside a shop sales-wise after front list is evergreens. And evergreens are things that drive sales. These are the games that are being played and being purchased and being repurchased and being restocked. And like Jen said, the big challenge there is supply. Uh, if there is not a ready supply to restock a game, uh, and uh, it's something that I feel is, is worthy of a spot on my shelf all of the time, and I try to get it, and I'm not able to get it for months and months and months, I might forget about it in six months and be consumed with looking at other front list stuff or trying to feed other evergreen stuff. But to answer uh, Jason's question, uh, yes, absolutely. There are evergreen RPG titles. There are evergreen titles inside the indie space, as Jen mentioned, a bunch of them. Uh, I just restocked Burning Wheel. How far back does that go? Um, 
so yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that I would consider evergreen. Being an RPG uh, focused shop for as long as we have, I've got stuff that goes all the way back. You know, our best selling line of RPGs after D&D and Pathfinder is Call of Cthulhu, which is kind of a pretty old game when you think about it. Uh, and we just restocked that again. Uh, and thankfully, uh, I, I know Kat's been having some issues uh, in distribution supply. Uh, luckily, Jason has picked up uh, uh, the slack on that. So we've been able to actually restock a lot of our Pograin stuff through Jason. But uh, some of the bigger distributors uh, have had some issues with some of the Pograin titles that I've had to source out elsewhere. I know Chaosium was having a similar problem with that. Uh, and they came to a solution as a big well-financed company that maybe Kat was, uh, is, is, and, and, and Simon, that Pograin maybe aren't as uh, easy to do, but they just flooded distribution with uh, large amounts of product so that it would be available at all times. So now I don't have a problem restocking all my evergreens out of Chaosium. And they make new evergreens. Harleman Bound is gonna be a new evergreen for us. Uh, and uh, we've got Champions, which is sitting behind Jason's head up there. Uh, you know, that's, I've been trying to get uh, uh, the previous version of the latest issue of Champions before uh, Champions Now, which just came out uh, for a while, because supply, again, it uh, is an issue. We have a whole section in the shop devoted to hero games. Uh, and so we're really pleased now to have the latest edition of Champions that we can order. That's an evergreen for us. So yeah, there's, there's evergreens across every category. And probably for role-playing games, there are probably more evergreens in role-playing games than even on my board game shelves. So yes, Jason, absolutely. Hi, thank hey, you, Jason. Brian. Yes. One trend that I would also like to see start, um, the new Nordic LARP style of game, we're finding is getting really good. There's some really nice titles out there. Um, it's really helping kind of make the old thoughts of LARP go away. Um, but I don't think the general community knows that yet. So I'm hoping we see some more games like that come out. Okay, uh, you know, uh, on that note real quick, uh, I'm also a big fan of something I call the artifact game. And that is a role-playing game that's such a physical artifact. You brought up um, Abadiah Ravenshaw's Dread earlier, Jennifer. And uh, his new game, Wolfspell, for example, that's an album, like literally like a 1970s vinyl album that three part folds out with all the text inside or Fall of Magic. Uh, or any of these things that just looks like something you have to have without even knowing what it is, I think, I think is a slowly building trend. Um, so, uh, Kat, uh, you are the publisher of th at least three off the top of my head evergreen role-playing games. Um, 13th Age, Knights uh, Black Agents, and Trail of Cthulhu, all very evergreen. Mm -hmm. do, you have any, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Obviously, you know, the goal is always to produce games that are of such good quality and um, have a good marriage, as I was saying earlier, of rules and theme and setting that um, it's, you know, you all, you're always aiming to create evergreens, but, you know, you don't always, always make it. Um, I mean, I guess the thing with 13th Age is that that's maybe in a different category because I feel like D20 games, you know, they're always going to be, there's always going to be a massive market for those. Um, thanks to D&D, there'll always be people interested in trying out new games in that area. Um, and Trail of Cthulhu, I think similarly, um, kind of it, it piggybacks, I guess, a bit on, on Chaosium, on Call of Cthulhu, and again, on people trying 
you know, both Chaosium and and Watsi have the marketing budgets that a company Aerosize doesn't really have. So they've spread the word about um, D20 fantasy and about Cthulhu mythos and investigative games out there. And then we're kind of <laughs> piggybacking on that kind of free marketing um, with it, with our kind of variants on those. Um, but Knights of Black Agents is a really, really interesting one because that's our own um, intellectual property. It's um, and it's quite a different game to um, all of our other games and also to what's out there in terms of um, in hardbacks. And I think with that, it's it's evergreen. And this is something that I was going to say. It's evergreen because it's a really grabby pitch. You know, it's like, you know, spies versus vampires. You're like, oh, cool. You know, it's just it's you can really succinctly explain what it is. And it's got a really, really strong premise and a strong, like I said, a strong hook, a strong elevator pitch. And that I think is a key thing about, um, about games that are evergreens is, is you can explain them quite quickly and, and they're just, they instantly start you thinking, right? You know, when you hear Spies versus Vampires or like we often say it's like the Bourne trilogy of Treadstone were vampires. Um, you know, you instantly can picture exactly what that game would play like, you know, how it would be to play it. And I think that's a, a key thing that evergreen titles tend to have. Like um, a one that, that I think of quite often is, um, is Blue Planet, which again is like a, a much older RPG, but it's just, it's so iconic in terms of its setting and what it's doing, but it's, it's still like, I've gone into, I'm, I'm still trying to find a copy of it. I, I keep going into stores, hoping to, hoping to pick it up. Um, but yeah, so I think a strong setting that's easily and quickly um, explained in a really grabby way is, is a key, is certainly for our three titles, is a key kind of element of that. Okay, thank you, Kat. I, I'd like to throw out the next question to you as well. Uh, and then I have a, maybe a brief comment on it. Uh, it's from Kyle uh, Elzey. And this is a really good one for those of you watching. Uh, any experience slash advice on purchasing rights to existing IPs for game development, pros and cons, question mark. Right, yes, that is a really, really good question. Um, licensing products or licensing IPs is not for every company. Um, it's something that we've, obviously we've dabbled in quite a lot. So we've licensed uh, 13th Age from our colleagues at Fire Oval Media. We've licensed um, Trail of Cthulhu from Chaosium. Um, and obviously our very first game was The Dying Earth, which we licensed from uh, Jack Vance. And then after he passed away, his estate. Um, so we have a bit of experience with licensed games. Um, I, the, I mean, the main pros um, when you're working with an existing IP are um, familiarity. Right. They they have already done, like I was saying with with Watsi and Chaosium, they've already done a lot of the marketing for you. There is usually an existing fan base that you can appeal to, that you can reach out to and and you can kind of tap into that existing market. So it's a really good way of of boosting your company's profile and boosting your customer base um, if you take on the licensed property, um, you know, because you, you're just expanding your your existing your existing audience, existing customers. Um, the cons, um, first of all, it's usually expensive. Um, it depends on the intellectual property. Um, they range very, very widely, depending on you know how big of a deal it is. Um, the Harry Potter uh, 
IP is notoriously impossible to get. So, you know, something like that would be very, very expensive. Whereas if you know, um, like my understanding is that when Fred Hicks was going to do the Dresden Files RPG, that he actually knew um, Jim Butcher personally. So I think that he was able to, to get that license at, at much more reasonably. So it, it really does depend on the IP as to how much it costs, but I think you can expect an upfront cost to it. Um, and for me, the other uh, the other big con, or the biggest other con, is um, you're effectively then usually, and again, it depends. It depends on the IP. Some some IP holders are um, a lot more forgiving and understanding, and allow you a lot more freedom with that um, IP. But I look at something like, um, for example, Cubicle Seven have the Doctor Who license, and the BBC are very strict on what they can do with that. I think it's probably similar for things like Star Trek licenses, Star Wars licenses, where the, the people who own those IPs, you know, have processes that you have to go through and hoops you have to jump through. And there is, I've heard stories of endless stages of approvals and coming back and approvals and coming back. And so it's, it can feel like you're not really, even though you're working on your own RPG, it can feel like it's not really your project because you're always going to be depending on somebody else's approval for it. And I, for me, that's, that's certainly the main con that, that puts me off working with more licensed properties. Um, although, <laughs> funnily enough, Simon has kind of the opposite perspective. He's really keen to work more on uh, licensed properties because that's how we've grown our business. So, thank you, Kat. Uh, yeah, pretty much you covered what I would say. I've I've, pro I've published myself two licensed properties, and they and both went very well uh, financially and in every other way because I was able to go meet uh, or speak with person and then meet in person in both cases the person who held the intellectual property. Um, typically, in my experience, these things are either just to answer the question as well either kind of a license to print money or your descent, it's a descent into nightmare. Uh, and you, you don't always know which it'll be when you get into it. So it's best if you can actually meet with the person that owns the intellectual property in person, or at least a lot on the phone, and have a very long conversation about it and, and gauge, gauge them as a person or people. Uh, let's see. Um, okay, uh, next up, uh, maybe for, for uh, Jennifer and then Brian, from Dice Geeks, do any of the retailers buy from uh, Amazon Expanded Distribution, which I've never heard of. So uh, please take it away, maybe Jennifer. Yeah, I have to say, I haven't heard of Amazon Expanded Distribution. Uh, I try not to purchase a lot of things from Amazon. Uh, occasionally there will be things on there that are cheaper than what I can get through distribution. So I will alert my distributors, hey, I can save money by going to this giant conglomerate. How, how are we going to help me out? But I know my distributors also have to make money. So Amazon is a, uh, at this point in my life, it's kind of a necessary evil, right? I, I need to make profit, especially when there's times when I'm shut down for two months and I've got to spend money while I'm not making money. Uh, but I don't know about their extended distribution. Uh, Brian, do you have any thoughts on that? I've also not heard of Amazon Extended Distribution. 
I will tell you that while we've been on this call, an Amazon driver has dropped off product uh, meant for my customers uh, on my front table. Uh, and like Jen said, that is product that was available for sale at significantly less than what I would have to pay a distributor for it. So I availed myself of the additional discount, uh, knowing that uh, when I placed that order, it was cheaper, but right now it's not. Uh, so uh, when that window opened, I took advantage of it so I could uh, get that extra margin for the shop uh, and I'll do that. But I think that I find that most often I'm using Amazon as a supply source when distribution has run dry. Uh, and I have a customer that I wanna make happy and I wanna make sure that they know that I'll go the extra mile for them. And even if it means that I'm not gonna profit on the sale where I'm gonna profit less, I'll take that extra step because I want that customer to be to know that I'm someone that can be relied upon to at least make the effort to get the thing that they're looking for. Uh, that's rarely the case uh, with uh, small press and indie RPGs because they don't find their way onto Amazon all that often. Uh, but sometimes uh, that does happen. Uh, and uh, I guess I'm going to have to look at what Amazon extended distribution is because Jeffrey needs our money, obviously. Yeah. I will say here at IPR, I do what I can to see that small press RPGs do not find their way to Amazon, but instead find their way here whenever possible. Um, so uh, Rosie has handed me a final piece of paper that says last question in large, uh, large letters on it. Um, we'll start out maybe with Kat on this one. It's from Our or Ducks. A question, any thoughts on the solo RPG microtrend? Have they been selling have you seen interest from your customers? Kat, do you want to maybe comment on this as a publisher? Because I, I have seen the trend. Uh, for example, in three days, we sold every copy and we had hundreds of them of Thousand Year Old Vampire we had here. Yeah. So um, Kat, if you would start with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've um, recently published a one player, one GM adaptation of our Gumshoe system, which is one of our most um, extensively supported uh, systems. And um, that kind of came about because I was at, um, I was boothing at a convention and a couple came up to me and um, I was kind of a married couple and the they were looking for a game that they like RPGs that they could play at home themselves. And I kind of said, well, you know, you could hack these ones in this way, but like, and I, I kind of looked at our product range and, and I thought, well, you'd have to hack all of them. You know, you, there's nothing that is designed for that kind of play. Um, and, and it kind of made me start thinking like, why, why not? <laughs> why like, you know, a kind of a two person configuration is a very, very common uh, living arrangement um, so or you know even two adults and, and children or whatever the kind of nuclear family so I took it back to the team and and we we um, asked Robin if he could you know kind of put his mind to kind of tweaking the gumshoe system in such a way that it would be better for that um, and it's just we've been really really surprised by the interest in it our, our first one Cthulhu Confidential is a kind of a noir um, a Nora Cthulhu Mythos um, one player, one GM investigative uh, game. And it just, it, people were really, really excited about it. So we did a Knights Black Agent solo ops, which is again like one player, one GM. Um, and again, that's been a really, really big seller for us. And that was all before we went into the, the apocalypse. Um, and since the apocalypse, when people have been locked down in their homes, I feel like that's a trend that's only gotten bigger and bigger. 
as people, you know, because I think I feel like a lot of people aren't really interested in playing online. So they're looking for games that they can play in their existing domestic situation. That's been our kind of big takeaway um, in, in terms of the change um, since kind of COVID apocalypse. Um, yeah, so it's it's been really really big for us. Like I I'm I'm trying really hard to to uh, publish more and more one player one GM games. Um, and somebody asked me somewhere. I'm, I'm getting so many different kind of feeds coming into me that I'm I'm losing track. But somebody asked me about like that like single person games, like one player games. Effectively, like our games are designed for a GM and a player, but you you need two people. So. Um, I think it's definitely a trend that's going to increase. Like I've heard so much buzz about the thousand year old vampire. It seems to be doing really, really well. Um, and we don't know what the future holds. We don't know how long we're going to be trapped in our homes. Certainly I've, I've been buying one player games like there's no tomorrow personally, just to, you know, to kind of give myself the opportunity to play games. And as well as that, it just makes it so much easier for you. Even if you do play online, it's so easy to grab one other person right from the internet rather than trying to to find a whole um rather than trying to find a whole gaming group so yeah i think it's definitely going to increase and we've we've seen really good results from from our one-to-one -one titles all right thank you kat uh jennifer any thoughts uh, i need to look at more single player games for the store i i haven't past few months i've just been focused on other things but i mean i remember when James Ward came out with Eric Sunsword and Neves was like 20, 25 years ago. And I didn't have a gaming group and it was a one-on-one. -on -one and I, I remember how much I love that. So we carry a lot of one-on-ones or one-on-ones, but I haven't carried a lot of single person stuff and I really do need to look into that more. Okay, Brian. Yeah, so uh, Thousand Year Old Vampire was probably our best selling indie game in the last quarter. Uh, when I, uh, it was recommended uh, to me by Will Hindmark. She had picked up a copy and was talking about it. And uh, I, I looked more into it and was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I ordered some in from the shop for my PR and I was just blown away by uh, the concept and the production. I thought it was really cool. Um, when we're talking about, you know, uh, like marketing trends uh, for, uh, for small press RPGs, uh, or just RPGs in general, you know, and, and the way that actual play and, uh, and streamed games have kind of like taken over stuff and people's interest. Uh, I, I have a hard time focusing in and watching uh, uh, an RPG uh, run for three or four hours, but I would totally be into watching a streamed one-person role-playing game or two-person role-playing game. Uh, I think that would be fantastic, especially in the times that we're in now. I mean, this, this is the time for introverts, right? Introverts unite separately in our own rooms when we feel like it. Uh, it'd be like listening to an audiobook. I would totally watch a stream session of a solo played RPG uh, or, uh, or, or a two person RPG. I think that would be fantastic. I'd love to see more. All right, thank you, Brian. So. Uh, being again that Rosie came in and handed me this piece of paper saying last question, uh, I think we'll probably call it here if that's good with all of you guys. I think this has been a really informative and productive talk, and I, I would like to thank all of you for being here. Um,
Anybody have any any final comments they'd like to make uh, before we before we say goodbye to the viewers? Um, I, I think that a big thing, again, touching back on the, the kind of developing trends, um, a big thing that we found when we went into lockdown and everything was hectic um, was um, re-establishing the sense of community that we would usually have from, um, from going to conventions and, and kind of from gaming together and seeing people in person. So I think that definitely things that can replicate as much as possible, like Jennifer was saying earlier, um, with kind of virtual tabletops and things like that. I, you know, I think that like the connection, like not just the the communication, but the actual connection, ways that that we can look to continue our community and take care of our community while we're also distant from each other. I think that is something that I would love to see develop. You know, like more more caring resources effectively for for the community to, to kind of support us all in this, during these, these terrible times. And I don't think there's ever been um, a time where the three tiers or four tiers, as Brian was saying, um, needed to support each other so much. You know, we all just kind of need to be, we're all in this together, basically. This is our, all of our livelihoods and we all need to be kind of taking care of each other and keeping an eye out for each other and doing what we can, I think, so. That's my final thought. <laughs> that was very touching, actually. Uh, Jennifer? I'm, I'm with Kat, 100%. I got into gaming because I needed a community. Right now, every area kind of needs a community and a safe space where they feel they can be themselves. If you can't be that in my game room, at least we can help you bring that to your house. Brian? Uh, if, if the people that are watching, I guess, are mostly publishers or, or uh, people that would like to be publishers, uh, make your thing. Don't be afraid to reach out to anybody else in the business. One of the things I love about this industry is that nearly anyone that you talk to is willing to help. Uh, you can reach me uh, at, at ADV Game Store on Twitter or AdventureGameStore at gmail.com. Uh, I'm sure that many of the other people who are participating, uh, both in the stream of, from, that are watching it and people are giving are more than happy to uh, dispense with whatever help or direction uh, that anybody might want to have. Uh, everything that I've learned in the business, I've learned from somebody else in the business, and they have given me that information gladly uh, and willingly and uh, with, a, with a helping hand in mind. So uh, don't be afraid to reach out. Definitely do it. People are out there willing to help you and every, everybody succeeds uh, when we help each other. Well said. Uh, well, that's, this concludes our panel. Thank you all very much. This has been, I think, really productive and informative. And uh, everybody have a good day. Thank you for coming.